Take your Bibles this morning to the book of John, chapter number 11, for the second week in a row. As we study the statement made in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Those song lessons I've been giving my wife have really been paying off here lately. I tell you, a beautiful song, she did a great job. and I wouldn't say this about any other special, but also done by a beautiful lady. Maybe if my mom was singing, I'd say that. But just saving up the brownie points now, y'all. That's, that's the way that works. Amen. John chapter number 11. Now, I mentioned to you that we started this series last week. I'd call it a series, I guess, would be uh, uh, appropriate. But really, it's a, an expanded sermon over the three different perspectives that I find in, pretty prevalent in the passage As I considered it even deeper, I think I can find as many as six different perspectives on this one story and and this one event in the Scriptures. But we're just studying three. Now last week we looked at kind of the first verses of the chapter. And it was the way that the disciples of Christ perceived the events going on. We mentioned a few things about that. But this week we come to now the, the sisters, maybe as a central character in the story. That is Martha, seems to be a prominent lady in the community, and Mary, her sister. And they're the sisters of Lazarus. Now in verse number 1, just by way of review, the chapter opens up and says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. And we studied it last week, and if you're not familiar with the story, what takes place is the Lord delays His departure for the city of Bethany, saying the sickness is not unto death. Later on, He tells His disciples that He must go, that He can awake Lazarus. And His disciples say, well, Lord, if He sleeps, it's a good thing. And He said, no, Lazarus is dead. He finally arrives at the city, and that's kind of where we pick up our story. Verse number 17 of John chapter number 11. Notice what the Bible says with me. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know now, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into this world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. 
As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, comforted her. When they saw Mary that rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. We find here two heartbroken sisters who are dealing with the tremendous loss of their loved one. And now, they had hosted Jesus on many occasions in their home. We have two of those occasions recorded for us in Scripture, but I believe you could see that it was kind of a common occurrence in His ministry that He would stop in at Bethany to be with Lazarus, with Martha, and with Mary. These two heartbroken sisters are now dealing with the wreckage left of their brother who's left them and a Savior who did not show up on time. Have you ever noticed that sometimes good just is not good enough? I can tell you in conversations with my wife, and she'll ask me a question, Honey, how does this dress look on me? I can tell you in those situations, good is not good enough. I've learned a little bit in my now 10 years of marriage, and I, I, I've learned that when she asks me that question, if I say, oh, yeah, it looks good, that is the wrong answer in that moment. Even last night, she was sitting in our bedroom as I was studying, and she was singing a song that she was considering singing this morning for church, and she said, honey, I want you to listen to it. How does it sound? Do you like the song? Do you like the soundtrack? Do you like it all? I said, baby, it sounds good. She did not sing that song this morning in church. Sometimes good just is not good enough. But how many of you believe this morning that God is good? How many believe that God is good all the time? But sometimes good just ain't good enough. Now I don't mean to suggest that God's level of goodness is not good enough at all times. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is sometimes God does not live up to our level of goodness for us. I think that's what we encounter this morning as sisters dealing with the knowledge that God is good, but dealing in a moment where things are not going good. So I want you to look with me in Scripture this morning, find just four aspects of the story. I think we'll explore them and they'll help us each and every one. Number one, this morning I want you to notice a mounting frustration. A mounting frustration. Be careful that as you read God's Word, it is not just black letters on a white piece of paper, and that the characters of the Bible stay as two-dimensional. Meaning they just stay here and they don't come to life. But I want this morning to thrust you into the moment of what Mary and Martha have been dealing with the past four days. And even really before that, as the Bible does not tell us how long Lazarus had been sick, I want you to consider with me the drama of the scene. Think about this. The Bible tells us that there had been many Jews come to comfort them in this time of hurting. This was customary in that day. In fact, there were even people that were compensated for mourning with you. 
They were, as it were, professional mourners. And I can say, I'm just thankful I do not have that career path in my life. Professional mourners. In fact, it's interesting that Amos chapter 5, verse 16 even says, And such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. They had a particular skill set. How would you like to be known as the Michael Jordan of lamentations? Uh, the, the Tiger Woods of wailing, you know? But that's really what these people were. They were professional mourners. They came in often at the loss of a loved one and sat there at least for a period of seven days with you and just let it all out. And this, this was what they did. Along with that, I think you get the sense in the passage that there are many friends and acquaintances and associates. As it appears in Scripture that Lazarus and Martha and Mary were a prominent family in this community, they come to just kind of pay their respects for Lazarus and his family. And the house is full of people, but the scene is a sad sight. I tell you, I've been in situations after a Christian goes home to be with the Lord that are not sad. I've attended funerals that did not feel like a sorrowful moment, but a celebration of someone gone home to be with the Lord. But I don't think that was this scene. This mourners, these mourners, at least in this initial seven-day period, were known for wailing aloud, like screaming and crying. And then after that seven-day period, another period of about 30 days took place that was less intense of mourning and wailing, but yet it still occurred for the loss of Lazarus. This is a dramatic scene. I just want you to think about Mary and Martha as they're sitting in their home with these people who probably were associates, probably were acquaintances, and even these professional mourners, but none of them were really friends. You remember what their message to Jesus was? He whom thou lovest is sick. While they are surrounded by people who can offer kind words... And, 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 and maybe phrases of consolation like, oh, it's all going to be okay. Time heals all wounds. They are surrounded by people like that while waiting on a Savior who can fix all their problems. Everybody's moaning and everybody's complaining and everybody's sorrowful. And yet the one that they had summoned, the one that they had called for, has not shown up. I want you to not only consider the drama of the scene, but I want you to consider the death of Lazarus. Now, medically speaking, something that occurred in this moment, uh, presumably, many people think that Lazarus was actually the youngest of the two, Martha being the oldest, Mary the middle child, Lazarus the youngest. It, it makes sense that if Lazarus got sick, that this was a rapidly progressing sickness. Perhaps it was a fever of some sort. And that this moment in time, this very short period where they send off for Jesus, Lazarus is sick. And in this, this short period of time, he died very likely an excruciating death. You see, I, in the recent months, I, I don't know why, but in the last year, I've had two different encounters where I've gone into the living room of a family who is literally watching their loved one die in front of them. So about a year ago, I was invited into a home and I sat there as this man had been married to his wife since high school. 
And now he sits there brokenhearted as he hears the dying gasps of his high school sweetheart. Laying on that medical bed with medical technicians and people caring for them up until the time of their eventual certain death. I visited a family just about two weeks ago after Sunday morning service, who we, when we arrived on scene to witness to the man, we asked, is he, uh, is he aware? Can he carry on a conversation? They looked at us and said, he just died. He just died. And now the grandchildren sit over that man and they're, they're uh, teary-eyed and they're crying over the loss of their loved one. In those moments, can you imagine with me, Lazarus in the living room of Martha and Mary, and every breath gets harder and harder for Lazarus. And even there's a thing that they kind of call a death rattle. And it is the eventual time where your body no longer swallows or coughs. And so your body, your, your, your throat just fills up with all sorts of saliva. And with every breath, it just gets more and more difficult. And you begin to gargle and gasp for your last breaths of life. And in the back of their mind, as Martha and Mary consider the tragedy of this moment, and they hear every breath being more and more excruciating, and the the eventual death being more and more likely, I wonder if in the back of their mind, they're not thinking, well, Jesus will show up at any time. But he didn't. Consider the drama of this scene, the death of it all. And then think about the delay. The timeline's pretty clear. They send the messenger to Jesus. It seems like it's about a two-day journey to where Jesus was at the time. By the time the, the messenger arrives to deliver the news that Lazarus is sick, it is either at that moment or very near that moment, Lazarus probably dies. Because in that two-day journey, Jesus then delays two days, decides to come uh, two days later, and the Bible says He's been dead four days. So, I just wonder, as Mary and Martha deal with this moment, and I, 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 I have a feeling they probably had more sundials than those actual clocks on the wall that tick, 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 or the cat with the tail swinging and the eyes going back and forth. That's horrifying had an ant with a house full of clocks. Man, when that thing struck midnight, every bird and uh, horn whistle and train station went off. That's a scary thing. But I just imagine with them sitting there in their living room with their brother dying, with every click of the clock, they did not realize how, how much more serious this issue was becoming. The delay. And can you just... If, if maybe one of those aspects of this moment resonated with you, imagine how their frustration just gets worse and worse and worse. When Lazarus got sick, I'm sure the, the thought in everybody's mind was, well, it's okay, Jesus goes throughout all the countries healing people. This is no problem for Him. Let's just call for Jesus. And yet two days later, Jesus is nowhere to be found, and their brother is now dead I want you to place yourself in their shoes and think of the frustration that you might have had. Now as you consider the mounting frustration, I want you to think of the maligned favor. It's no doubt that Jesus had a good relationship with His family. And the family likewise had a good relationship with Jesus. They loved each other. I believe it was quite deep of of a love that they had for one another. 
And yet when Jesus shows up four days late, if you will, he's not greeted with, oh, we're so glad you came. You finally made it. All of our problems are solved. No, that's not what he arrives to. Both sisters greet him the exact same way. Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Both of them. You know why they both responded that way? Because that was the thought marinating in their minds for the past four days. Where's Jesus? Where has he been during all this? He's been healing lepers and healing blinded eyes. and He's never even met these people. And yet we've hosted Him in our home. We've had conversations with Him. We've listened to Him teach. I've served Him meals. He goes everywhere healing everybody. But when my need comes up and my problems arise, He's nowhere to be found. Lord, if You had been here, my brother had not died. Both ladies respond in a similar manner, but both of them handle it differently. I want you to see how we, we kind of notice this because Martha is a woman of action. Martha is known for speaking her mind. Martha is known for correcting our Lord. In fact, in this passage, she shows up and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. In another passage, the Bible tells us just a little later in this, in this passage, Jesus instructs them to roll the stone away, right? Now Jesus is on the case. Now it should be all good. Now just do what He says and everything's going to work out. And by the way, that's just good life advice all the time. Do what He says and everything's going to work out. Uh, but, but Jesus says, roll the stone away. You know what Martha does? Even though Jesus has come all this way, though Jesus had told her, I am the resurrection and the life, though He's had all these conversations with her, Jesus says, roll the stone away. You know what Martha says? Lord, by now He stinketh. <laughs> Do you think the omniscient God of all the universe had an inkling how bad the odor of Lazarus was at this moment? Yet Martha being the woman of action that she was, said, Lord, by now he stinketh. Do you remember the account of Jesus visiting their home in Luke's gospel where Martha is serving, serving, serving. Mary, her younger sister, is just at the feet of Jesus, just hanging on to every word that Jesus is speaking. And Martha says, Lord, why don't you just tell her to get up off of her lazy carcass and get up and help me serve? Man, that's pretty bold for a lady to tell the Lord that. She was a lady of action. That's what she was. And so is it any wonder why, or is it any wonder that when Jesus is said to be coming, she runs out to greet Him? That's what she does. She's an action lady. She's a problem solver. She speaks her mind. It reminds me of the elderly couple that were traveling down the road. They're on a road trip together. A, uh, a lady highway patrolman stopped them, pulled them over. The husband was hard of hearing and he was driving at the time. He pulls up to the window and the lady highway patrolman says, I need your license. Uh, he couldn't hear very well, so he leaned over to his wife and uh, he said, what'd she say? She said, she needs your license. He said, oh, okay, I'll get my license. And she said, do you know why I pulled you over today? I, I pulled you over because you were speeding. 
The husband again couldn't hear, so he leaned over to his wife and said, What'd she say? She said you're speeding! And so the lady was obviously, the highway patrolman was dealing with this weird encounter. And so the uh, stop went on. Once she received the license, she realized that they were out-of-state non-residents. And she said, oh, well, y'all are from Arkansas. Okay. I went to Arkansas once. And she was trying to bring some levity to the situation. It's kind of a weird stop. A cute old couple in the car. She said, I was in Arkansas at one point. I actually lived there for a short time. I got set up on a blind date while I was there, and I'm telling you, he was the worst date I've ever had, and he was the ugliest dude I've ever been around. The husband, again, couldn't hear anything that was said, so he leaned over to his wife and said, What'd she say? She said, She remembers you! (laughs) How many of you have ever been around a lady that knew exactly what to say and just how to say it? Martha was that lady. She was a woman of action. And yet I think in her approach to Jesus and the way that she corrected Him, Lord, if you would just been here, I think what we see is her attempt to assess the Lord's performance. Meaning, Lord, you didn't meet my expectations. Lord, you should have been here. And, and we've, we've entertained you, we've, we've cared for you, we love you, we're your friends. All these other people, they're strangers. And we get it, you're good, and you're loving, and you're gracious, and you have power over all sorts of ailments. But when we need to do the most, you let us down. Can I just say it's never wise to sit down and begin to assess the Lord's performance in your life? I'll tell you what, I'm glad he doesn't sit down and assess my performance on a daily basis to see if I'm worthy of heaven or not. This lady is a woman of action. She begins to assess the Lord's performance. I want you to notice, though, Mary's a little bit different. Though her thoughts were the same, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died, her reactions are different because she's a woman of attention. She is pictured in that story in Luke where... Jesus visits their home. She's the one sitting at His feet, hanging on to every word. In fact, we find Mary in three different stories, all at the same place, at the feet of Jesus. In that story, she's sitting down listening to His teaching. In this story, she falls at His feet and says, Lord, if Thou hast been here. In John chapter 12, the very next chapter, by the way, she opens the ointment, pours it on His feet, and wipes His feet with her hair at the feet of Jesus. She's a woman of attention. Yet I want you to notice in verse number 20 what her intentional decision is. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met Him. Listen. But Mary sat still in the house. Why did she do that? I believe it's because that was her reaction to her disappointment. Where Martha assessed the Lord's performance, Mary here, we find her avoiding the Lord's presence. She is known for being at the feet of Jesus. She wants to be around Him. She wants to hear His words. But when news gets back that Jesus is coming to town, her brother's dead, she's in the middle of her sorrow, she doesn't want to spend time with Christ. She doesn't want to be around Him. 
Can I say that's a reaction that many of us have when things in our life don't live up to our expectations? We begin to avoid the Lord as if we can go someplace that He is not. You know, the psalmist says it like this, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? (laughs) Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. And if I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. But we, like Jonah, arise and run from the presence of the Lord into Tarshish. That's what we do. Because the Lord hasn't lived up to our standard of good. He's not meaning... When we needed Him, when we thought that He would show up, He just did not. So, So we see a mounting frustration and a malign favor. I want you to notice this with me this morning. A manufactured faith. I think we find in Martha's life an attempt to be what she knows she ought to be, but the difficulty of being that in the moment. Notice with me a manufactured faith in verse 21. Here's what she says. Then Martha, well, we'll just start in verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Meaning... She brings up the past. Lord, all you had to do was show up. Which, frankly, I'm pretty impressed by her faith. She believed that Jesus could have healed her brother. But she brings up the past. Lord, if if you had been here, Lord, you could have handled it differently. Lord, if you had been here, things would have worked out better for me. How many people are prisoners of their past? Still caught up with the disappointments of yesterday, so they can't move on to the victories of tomorrow. Listen to me, I do not mean to suggest that the things that you have been been through in your past are not hurtful, did not cut you deep, and did not leave lasting scars. I do not mean to suggest that. I'm thinking right now of a lady in our congregation, a godly lady who in her past has been a, 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 a time of domestic abuse, of being verbally and physically beaten by her husband. I'm thinking about that, but I'm thankful that that lady left that in her past. And she moved forward for the vic- uh, and experienced victory from God. Amen. You see, I'm not suggesting that things in the past did not hurt you, but, but let me tell you this, friend. God allowed those things in your past to develop you for this moment and for your ministry. And, and don't ever look at God and say, God, if you'd have just been there for me. God, if you'd have come through. Listen, friend, God is good. And God is good at all times. And just because you experienced hurt in your past does not mean you cannot experience hope in your future. This Martha, she's, she mentions the past. Lord, you, you just didn't, you didn't show up. You weren't there. You know what would be wise advice is if we just all let go of the past and let God in the future. The Apostle Paul found this very important because he says, This one thing I do. This one thing I do. Have you ever noticed in the Christian life there's so many things to focus on? He says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. She brings up the past. She's trying to be faithful, but she's struggling in her hurt. So she brings up the past. She brings up the present. Notice in verse number 22. 
But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Now, I do not mean to suggest that Martha and Mary are villains in this passage. In fact, what I find is, I very much identify with what they go through here. Knowing the man that I need to be, and yet sometimes what, my, what I'm feeling and what I'm going through is not that. So she brings up the present. She says, Lord, intellectually, I know that at any moment you can ask whatever you want and God will give it to you. I know. And by the way, friend, that's faith. Faith is knowledge with no proof. Faith is realizing what has not been performed. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, uh, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. She's holding on to faith and she says, Lord, if you'd have been here yesterday, things would have been much different. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. She brings up the past. She's trying to be in the moment. And I actually take great encouragement from her even now faith. It's very hard to have even now faith in the heat of the battle. In the depths of your sorrow. In the absolute worst parts of your hurt. And you're able to look at God with tear-filled eyes and a heart full of sorrow and say, Even now, God, I know that you're good. Even now I know that you can work this for my good and for your glory. Even now, though the hurt is, is overwhelming, even now it's so deep and so hurtful, but even now I trust you. Friend, I can tell you, they're not villains in this story. They are victorious because Martha says, Lord, even now I know you're working for me. That's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. It says, and we know... We know. You know what that is? That's faith. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to His purpose. Man, God give me some even now kind of faith. Horatio Spafford, the man that wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul, had just lost his four-year-old son and, uh, and then he lost all of his uh, attorney practice in a great Chicago fire, then leaving uh, America to go help D.L. Moody in an evangelistic crusade in England. His family sailed over before him. He lost all four of his daughters in that shipwreck. And then his wife arrives in England, sends back a message to him and says, Saved alone. She's the only one that survived. Saved alone. He hops on a boat and goes across the, the uh, ocean And as he arrives at the scene of his daughter's death, his son's dead, his daughters are dead now, he's lost all of his business, he's lost all of his practice. Now he's in this moment and God gave him the courage and the faith to write the words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, and when sorrows like sea billows roll. What he's talking about is the sea billows are the things that consumed his daughter's. When peace comes my way, everything's good. And when sorrows overwhelm me, he says, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. You know what that is? That's even now faith. Even in my hurt, even in my sorrow, even in my tragedy, God, I know you could have done things different yesterday. And I know you can fix today. And then she brings up the promise. Notice this in verse 24. Jesus says, well, thy brother shall rise again. 
There's hope, Mary. I've, uh, there's hope, Martha. I finally arrived on scene. Everything's going to work out. Thy brother shall rise again. Notice this. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. For lack of a better term, I think that Martha is hanging on to the religious platitudes that we all know to be true. You know, the statements that carry weight, we've probably heard preachers mention them. It's like we, we come up to someone who's just lost their loved one and we say, well, we're going to get to see them when we get to heaven. You know, that may resonate with you in that moment, but it probably doesn't mean much to the family member who's literally choking back their tears. And I, this, I, this is just the way I read the passage, but I think that Martha... It's caught between the weight of the sorrow she's feeling and the knowledge of what she knows to be true. It's very much spirit versus uh, spirit versus flesh. It's very much I I know I, I I know he's got a plan and I know he's working, but why did it have to turn out like this? Why? Wrestling between a bumper sticker sort of theology. You know, we slap bumper stickers on our trucks and on our vehicles to let everybody know we're a Christian. Friend, if you're going to drive like you drive, you might as well just take those off. Personally, my opinion. But we, we have bumper stickers that say stuff like, don't put a question mark where God's put a period. If you kneel before God, you can stand up to anything. We, we, these are statements that probably in a moment of time really spoke to us, but I'm just telling you, when you are in the heat of that moment, the depths of your sorrow, bumper sticker theology does not last. What you intellectually know to be true and what you're able to accept by faith are not the same things. And she is struggling. She says, Lord, I know He shall raise on the resurrection of the last day. I know one day I'm going to get to see Him in heaven. I know one day we're going to have a Martha mansion and a Lazarus mansion and a Mary mansion. And maybe by then they can start carrying their own weight. But one day I know that's going to happen. And it is to that statement that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. We'll speak about this next week. But what Jesus is inviting her to do is experience in her moment, what she is realizing is a promise. So he says, no, 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 don't don't push me off to the future as if I can fix your tomorrow. Keep me in your here and now and I can fix today. I am the resurrection and the life. You're, You're trying to live faith as if it's something that we hope for. No, faith is lived out today. I am the resurrection and the life. These women are actually quite remarkable because even in the depths of their hurt, they have an ability to trust the Lord. And because of that, we see, fourthly, a miraculous feat. Verse 43 and verse 44, they finally arrive on scene at the the graveside of Lazarus. Verse 43 says, And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, 
I imagine like a potato sack race, Lazarus hopping out of the grave, like, hey guys, what's up? That was a good nap. And he's hopping out of the grave in his grave clothes, and his face was bound about him with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Jesus delayed four days, showed up, quote unquote, four days late. They've had to deal with the trauma of watching their brother die, of him taking his last breath, anointing his body with spices and wrapping him in these grave clothes, carrying him and escorting him down to the tomb, placing him there, having to deal with the mourners and the the cries and the sorrow of that moment. They've had to deal with a lot, but Jesus fixed all of it in three words. Lazarus, come forth. And with those simple words, He changed the outcome of their situation and changed their outlook of their future. Now they're thinking about empty chairs around dinner tables and Jesus, with three words, fixes their problem. He made one declaration and fixed it all. In Lazarus, we see a picture of our salvation, though, because Lazarus is dead in our story. He was sick and he died. You know, the Bible says the same thing about you and I. It says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are born dead, if you will. Spiritually speaking, of course, we are born spiritually dead. We do not naturally seek God. We do not naturally want to know God. In fact, the Bible pictures it quite differently. We're running away from God as fast as we can. We are dead. In fact, Ephesians, or uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. We're born in sin, we're conceived in sin, and we are dead at birth. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, As in Adam all die. Speaking of our natural birth, our, 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 of our father, Adam, we're born dead, but the verse goes on to say, Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The Lord told Nicodemus, you must be born again because there is a natural birth and a spiritual birth. You must be born again. And in a very real sense, friend, all of us are born in that tomb. We're all dead with no ability to act out on our own with no ability to make decisions and come to Christ. And yet Jesus, in a moment of time, steps out and says, Lazarus, come forth. And the Word of God awakens in our soul a realization of our need for Him and that He is the resurrection and the life. There's the picture of our death, but there's a picture of life. Because when Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoso liveth and believeth in me shall never die, believest thou this? Because when we come to Christ and we trust Him as our Savior, we go from death unto life. The Bible says, I give unto them eternal life, and no man shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. What Jesus gives, no man can take away. We are born dead. We need to be made alive. That happens as we trust Christ in faith that He is 
the resurrection and the life. That He was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth so that we might have eternal salvation. See, the problem is, in our society, anytime we hear something that sounds too good to be true, here's what we do. We believe it is too good to be true. How many of you get the phone calls of the free cruises that you've won? You get the emails. Congratulations, you've got a $1,000 Amazon gift card. You get the, you get the email that says, uh, I'm looking to ship gold to America. I just need you to send me $1,000 to make sure that you can handle it. Friend, I can handle all the gold you want to send, but you don't need to see how much money I've got to get there. In our world, we're bombarded with get-rich-quick schemes and all these like fake... Uh, fake things that promise so much but deliver so little. The question at the bottom of this story is, how can we know that what God says is true? And that at the moment when we need Him the most, He will show up. By the very same way that Lazarus was made alive. We accept and we trust the Word of God. Lazarus, come forth. And by the Word of God, Lazarus was given life again. I'm not here today to convince you of the goodness of salvation. What I am here to do today is to proclaim to you the truth found in God's Word. This is not how you obtain salvation according to a preacher. This is not how you get to heaven based upon my experience or the funny stories that I can recite about elderly couples. This is God's Word says you can be saved. Now I've got to tell you, friend, I've never been to heaven. So experientially, I have no expertise in this area. All I know is I was that dead man laying in that tomb... And at 12 years old, I went to the back room of a youth camp and I prayed and asked God to come into my heart. And since that day, what was dead in me has been made alive. And I believe that when, though I was spiritually born dead, my second birth gave me eternal life. So when I cross, you know, the, the terrible illustration of Jordan's chilly river, when I cross the, that, that day, when I come to heaven's gate, I'll stand there and I will not say, Lord, you got to let me in because I was good. Or Lord, you got to let me in because I never said a cuss word. Uh, I will say on that day, Lord, according to your word, you promised me eternal alive. I want you to see the saddest part of this story. It's found in verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on Him. I mean, that makes sense. They just saw a guy raised from the dead. Verse 46. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees And told them what things Jesus had done. How can you be in this moment of seeing a man raised from the dead at the voice of one that says, Lazarus, come forth. How can you see that and not trust him? How 
can you come to the place where you see such a great miracle and you not just say with all heart, with an open heart, Lord, I surrender. You are Lord. You say you are the resurrection and the life, but then you prove it by giving life and a resurrection. But yet people leave on this day and do not accept Him. People reject the very one who not only says He can give life, but the one that proves He can do it. There's a story in Luke chapter 16 of a man that raises his eyes after he dies in hell. And his prayer request, after being rejected for just a little bit of relief, his prayer request is, would you send uh, Lazarus to just go tell my brothers about you? Just tell my brothers about the horrors of this place. Tell them. You know what Abraham's response is? They have Moses and the prophets. If they will not hear them, they will not believe. If Jesus were to come into this auditorium today and were to raise someone from the dead, there would still be unbelievers. We could broadcast it nationally. It could make the evening news. I'm sure it wouldn't make some of them because that would be way too Christian for some of their media. But but if we could broadcast it to the world, though we had a real life resurrection, you know what some people would still say? Yeah, but I just don't believe it's real. My greatest fear is that today you're looking for some great miracle, some great proof of God's existence, some some validation that He loves you. Friend, He gave you this book to prove that He loves you. He sent His Son to die on a cross to prove that He loves you. And though one were raised from the dead, if you will not accept His word, you will reject His miracle. Today, would you just come to Him and believe in faith? God could have chose any manner of salvation He wanted to. And you know what He chose? Faith. Believing without seeing. Experiencing without actually having valid, substantive proof. Faith. You've got to believe Him. He says He'll save you if you will trust Him.